The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by Delta Airlines. Delta has partnered with 55 academic institutions to create a pipeline of the next generation of pilots and technicians. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Friday, December 14th. In today's news, federal prosecutors investigate President Trump's inaugural committee for possible misuse of funds. The Senate defies Trump on Saudi Arabia and votes to stop U.S. support for the war in Yemen. And a seven-year-old's death while in the custody of the Border Patrol prompts an investigation. But first, the big idea. Nancy Pelosi locked down the votes this week to become Speaker again by deploying the same tactics she used last time she had the gavel tapping a vast network of allies, relying on a grab bag of political favors, and most importantly, methodically undermining her opposition. Pelosi was vulnerable, but she survived because of strategic and tactical mistakes made by Congressman Seth Moulton, a Democrat from Massachusetts who had emerged as the ringleader of the rebels trying to bring her down. The hyper-ambitious Moulton has become a lightning rod, and Pelosi allies, including some of the biggest donors in the Democratic Party, are now determined to field a primary challenger against him in 2020. Here's how it all went down. The day after the midterms, Moulton drew up a list of 58 Democrats who he knew wanted a new leader. Most of those he believed would sign a letter expressing opposition to Pelosi. Then eventually he settled on 35 names that he thought were gettable, Ultimately, he could only get 16 of those 35 to sign a letter, which he then released on November 19th. Then Pelosi went about picking a bunch of them off by offering them carrots and sticks. Moulton, a former Marine Corps officer, grumbled that there are, quote, a lot of summer soldiers around here. But Team Pelosi just out-hustled him every day. When during a CNN appearance, he accused her of not moving aggressively on gun control legislation during her previous time as Speaker, her aides lined up gun control advocates to criticize him. Moulton annoyed other members of the rebel group by issuing a statement two days before the Democratic nominating vote declaring that he was willing to negotiate with her about the broader leadership team, upending the strategy that they had settled on. My colleagues Mike DeBonis and Bob Costa report that other members of the rebel group urged Congresswoman Kathleen Rice from New York to take a more aggressive role as the female face of the anti-Pelosi effort but she bristled at being asked to step forward as a token woman, especially by Moulton, who she blames for blowing the chance to stop Pelosi. Moulton told his colleagues that he'd win over the incoming freshmen, even referring to these lawmakers as my candidates, according to multiple Democratic sources. Politico reports that Moulton forged personal connections to the anti-Pelosi candidates who had military backgrounds and that they were central to his strategy. He campaigned with them all year, raised money for them, and worked alongside VoteVets, a liberal organization supporting Democratic veterans running for office. Moulton told these members-elect that Pelosi was going to be ousted and that it would be good for them politically to join the movement. But Moulton way oversold his sway. Representative-elect Mikey Sherrill, a former Navy helicopter pilot, who got elected in New Jersey, released an ad during the campaign against Pelosi and campaigned with Moulton, but she wouldn't sign his letter. Why not? Pelosi neutered Moulton right under his nose. Just after the midterms, she phoned up VoteVets chairman John Soltz and asked for his help wooing the incoming freshman. 
Soltz had been working with Moulton closely for the year, but also has had a good working relationship with Pelosi. He decided his group would remain neutral. And he told the incoming freshmen to think about the long game. To be an effective legislator, he said they would have to work with the next speaker, which more likely than not would be Pelosi. This incensed Moulton. When he pushed the incoming freshmen, especially the veterans, harder to sign his letter, he repelled them even more. Some of the female veterans especially were annoyed, complaining to one another that they were being used by Moulton for his own political gain. A final straw came when Moulton asked for a meeting with Pelosi to start talks between the two sides. Then he misled his fellow rebels about who initiated the discussion. Moulton told Kathleen Rice and Tim Ryan, a Democrat from Ohio who ran against Pelosi two years ago, that Pelosi had requested the meeting. In reality, he had gone to Pelosi's chief of staff and said they wanted to sit down. So Rice walks into Pelosi's office and says, thank you for calling this meeting. And Pelosi scoffs and tells her, I didn't ask for this meeting. Then there was a long, awkward silence. It unraveled from there. To channel Omar on the wire and poet Ralph Waldo Emerson a century before, if you come at the queen, you best not miss. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that ought to be on your radar this Friday. Number one, President Trump's 2017 inaugural committee is being investigated by federal prosecutors for possible misuse of funds. The Wall Street Journal reports that a criminal probe by the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office, which is in its early stages, is also examining whether some of the committee's top donors gave money in exchange for access to the incoming administration, policy concessions, or to influence official administration positions. The reporters note that giving money in exchange for political favors could run afoul of federal corruption laws. And diverting funds from the organization, which is registered as a nonprofit, could also violate federal law. Now, this investigation partly arises because of materials that were seized as part of the federal probe into former Trump attorney Michael Cohen. In a recording obtained during a raid of Cohen's hotel room, a former advisor to Melania Trump expressed concern to Cohen about how the inaugural committee was spending money. The committee has publicly identified vendors accounting for only $61 million of the $103 million that it spent, and it has not provided details of those expenses, according to tax filings. The committee raised more than double what Barack Obama did for his first inaugural in 2009. That was the previous record. Trump's funds came largely from wealthy donors and major corporations who gave $1 million or more. Number two. The Senate on Thursday afternoon delivered back-to-back rebukes of Trump's embrace of Saudi Arabia, first voting to end U.S. participation in the Saudi-led war in Yemen, and then unanimously approving a measure blaming the kingdom's crown prince for the ghastly murder of Washington Post contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi. Together, the dual actions represent an unambiguous rejection of Trump's continued defense of the Saudis despite a CIA assessment that concluded Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman likely ordered and personally monitored Khashoggi's killing. It suggests a bipartisan majority of senators may pursue broader punitive measures when Congress regroups next year, including sanctions and a halt to weapons transfers. This is the first time that either chamber of Congress has asserted itself against the executive branch by using the War Powers Act, which became law during the depths of the Vietnam quagmire in 1973. 
Thursday's vote was a win not just for the separation of powers enshrined in the Constitution, but also a personal triumph for two men on opposite ends of the ideological spectrum who have made stopping the war in Yemen their shared crusade, from Bernie Sanders on the left to Mike Lee on the right. Strange bedfellows. Number three, more heart-wrenching stories from the border. A seven-year-old girl from Guatemala died of dehydration and exhaustion after she was taken into Border Patrol custody last week. The child's death is likely to intensify scrutiny of detention conditions at Border Patrol stations and facilities that are increasingly overwhelmed by large numbers of families seeking asylum here. According to records, the girl and her father were taken into custody about 10 p.m. on December 6th, just south of Lordsburg, New Mexico, as part of a group of 163 people who approached U.S. agents to turn themselves in. The next morning, the child began having seizures. Emergency responders measured her body temperature at 106 degrees, and according to a statement from the Border Patrol, she reportedly had not eaten or consumed water for several days. An investigation is now underway to determine how a seven-year-old girl could have been in the custody of the U.S. government for eight hours and not received food or even water. And that's The Daily 202 for Friday, December 14th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you on Monday. Hi, I'm Martine Powers, host of Post Reports, a new daily podcast from The Washington Post, with the news, insights, and storytelling that you've come to expect from our newsroom. Check it out now at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports.